This is Luther's Works, Linker Edition, Volume 14, page 94. We're on the 14th Sunday after Trinity. We have a few more paragraphs here. It was on the Samaritan that with a loud voice glorified God because he was healed of his leprosy, where the nine didn't return. Now it was speaking of the way we praise God, First of all, which was on the last tape, we come to taste and see how the Lord is precious, how gracious and precious the gospel is. And now, the second part of this praise of God is to break forth with the voice and to confess before the world what the heart within believes of God. And this is on paragraph 67, page 94. Now this is nothing else than to bring down upon oneself the enmity of the world and to send many messengers after death and the cross. For he who would praise and honor God with his voice must condemn all the praise and honor of the world and say that all the works and words of man are nothing all the honor they have from them and that God's work and word alone are worthy of praise and honor. But you see that the world cannot tolerate this and so you must bear the brunt and be a heretic, a deceiver, a blasphemer while you promise many good works and a spiritual life in all your divine services. Then they will command your silence or make it hot for you, and it's not possible for them to suffer it from you, for their pet affairs they will not allow you to reject. So is it also impossible for you to cease and be still, but with loud voice like this leper you rather confess God's praise and honor alone in his works and word. And in this way you go to pieces and become ashes, then the Pope goes to work and enlarges his almanac with red ink, makes them saints in heaven, blots you out of the book of life, casts you forth 4,000 miles on the other side of hell, and you are now a rotten member cut off from holy Christendom, that you may not infect the holy church with the poison of your foul odor and your satanic doctrines. Christ speaks of this in Matthew 24, 9, quote, Ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Why for my name's sake? They would and might not tolerate the name, praise, and honor of God, for then they and their whole cause would be put to shame. And if God alone were wise, good, just, faithful, and strong, then they would be fools, wicked, unjust, liars, false, and impotent. Who would bear this great injustice? Their devilish heresy and so much divine service and godly life should for God's sake be abolished and changed as a foolish, unjust, false, and impotent thing? Not so. It must not be God, but the devil who pretends this. Behold, upon the highways all the prophets are murdered, and Christ himself. The world does not want to be a fool or to be unjust. But God will not suffer this from it, and hence he sends his messengers to punish it. And thus the saints must then shed their blood on account of it. 
Therefore it is a great act to praise God and to raise a free and loud voice before the world. However, the false saints and murderers of Christ also now praise and extol with a loud voice God and his works. Yea, they preach and cry more about God than the true saints do. As we even now see every corner full of preachers who highly extol and praise God, that he alone is worthy of praise and honor, and use the very same voice and word which the true preachers use. Why then is it not valid, or what's the matter with it? Without doubt, nothing else, and if they with this leper do not fall down at the feet of Christ to thank him, but want Christ to fall down at their feet and thank them. For the Jews give all honor to God, but of Christ they will know nothing. So it is with these, as long as we leave their cause alone and do not reject it, they cry and praise us very highly. But if one also judges them by their doctrine, and their own cry falls upon them, that they are nothing, their whole cause nothing but falsehood and foolishness, then their praise and cry are gone. And their false heart breaks forth and is revealed, so that they praise and honor God only with the mouth and themselves, and themselves with the heart. It's not enough that you loudly call and cry that God does all things and our works are nothing. You must also suffer such things to be said of you and your affairs. You can agree that Christ and your enemy is nothing and all he does is rejected. And you think it's right and well done, for his cause is not from God but against God. But... Do you wish to be rejected with him? You think that your cause is to be God himself and unrejected. How then is it possible that you should tolerate the rejected Christ, not to mention falling at his feet and regarding yourself as unworthy, when with him you would be rejected? Now as God has concealed himself in the despised man Christ and will dwell there, then you must not undertake to find him anywhere else except in contempt. Yea, you must reach the point also where you rejoice that you are found worthy to be despised and must also fall at his feet and thank him for the contempt, which will not suffer your cause to be anything, so that it be not words but it be deeds, that you say, God alone is to be praised and not man. Such instruction is first to be proved by you, that you suffer such things also for the sake of his doctrine, and consider yourself unworthy of all this. Thus Christ also taught the same, and he praised God's name alone, and also suffered first and most of all, that he became as nothing, so that no one can be compared to him in this. Oh, this is a rich, great example of which much might be said. But now it is sufficient that we may see a little how great a cause it is to prove God's praise by our actions and fall upon our faces at the feet of Christ, the man despised, as apostles were glad that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of which it is said, Psalm 72, 9, that the enemies of Christ are to bow before him and lick the dust from his footprints. 
That is, as St. Paul also says, they shall boast in his sufferings and cross that shall come upon them on account of the praise of God and the punishment of men. For as Christ himself thus suffered, suffering has become so precious that no one is worthy of it. It is to be regarded and esteemed as great grace. From this we see how far a Christian life is above the natural life. First, it despises self. Secondly, it loves and thirsts for contempt. Thirdly, it punishes everything that is unwilling to be despised, by which it resigns itself to all misfortune. Fourthly, it is also despised and persecuted on account of such contempt and punishment. Fifthly, it does not think itself worthy to suffer such persecution. Now, from the first part, the very first part, the world and nature flee. When then will he come to the last? First part is to despise oneself. But there is still another and a greater behind it concerning the falling at the feet of Christ, which the priests neither understand nor want. For not every faith is sufficient for it, but the faith of Christ must be there that truly humiliates us. Of this we will treat later under the spiritual interpretation. Now it says, And he was a Samaritan. Why was it necessary for the evangelist to write rather than something else that this one leper was a Samaritan? By this he opens our eyes and warns us that God has two kinds of people who serve him one that has the appearance and name of having a great spiritual holy life, is employed almost wholly in it, and yet it is all in vain. They are nothing more than ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. Yet they have the honor of it and are regarded by everyone as the true worshipers of God. Therefore, goods, honor, friendship flow to them, and everything the world has for God's sake for they think that he is there, and he who thinks differently is worse than a heathen, heretic, and apostate. Now the other type who serve God are without any show and name. Yea, they are of the opposite appearance, as though no one were less God's people than they, and in short, they are thorough Samaritans. A word that sounds as badly among the Jews as if at present you should revile one as a Turk, Jew, heathen, or heretic. For the Jews alone had the name of being God's people, and they alone had God and his worship for themselves in preference to all other people on the earth. And they hated the Samaritans above all nations, for the Samaritans claimed to be God's people along with the Jews. Therefore, a Samaritan was to them an apostate Christian, or as an apostate Christian is among us. And although it be true that the Samaritans did not rightly believe and that the Jews had the true law of God, it was according to human custom that they boasted alone of Judaism, despised the Samaritans, who were less Jews and worse Samaritans than the natural Samaritans. But now, as God loves the truth and is an enemy of hypocrisy with all its boasting, he turns it around and accepts the Samaritans and lets the Jews go. Thus it occurs that they are not his people, they who still have the name, appearance, and honor of his people, 
while those who are his people and have the name and appearance are heretics, apostates, and devil's children. That is, they're considered such. So it is even at the present. The clergy, priests, and monks call themselves and are regarded as the servants of God, and no one is a Christian who does not believe as they believe, whereas no one is less a Christian in God's people than just they who thus turn up and boast themselves among them. Again, those whom they hold are heretics, many of whom they have also burned in exile, like John Huss and his followers. They dare not be Christians, although they alone are the true Christians. Here then, this gospel is so powerful, this gospel text and lesson, that no one returns, no one exalts God with a loud voice, no one falls on his face at the feet of Christ, except the Samaritans, the despised, condemned, accursed, who must be heretics, apostates, errorists, and considered Satan's own children. Therefore, let us guard against everything that makes only a show. It certainly is deceiving. Let us not reject what does not make a display, so that we do not go and reject Christ and God as the Jews did. This Christ also desires when he says, And Jesus answering said, Were not the ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. The stranger does it. He sincerely gives God all the glory. Oh, what a terrible example is this. Among ten only one, and he among the least and most worthless. How entirely does God indeed overlook that which is great, wise, spiritual, and honorable? And yet such people have no fear, but become hardened and petrified in their nature. It is also terrible that the Lord knows ten of them are cleansed. Of this they did not think. To it he is not silent. He inquires after and seeks them. Where are the nine? Oh, what a frightful thing it will be when they at some future time will feel this inquiry and must answer whither they went, they did not give God the glory. Then they will say, Well, we've nevertheless praised and thanked God, and thus our priests have taught us to. Then it will appear whether it will help us to follow the doctrines of men in the name of God, and to forsake the doctrine and will of God. We are sufficiently warned in the gospel, therefore no excuse will help us if we allow ourselves to be deceived. In baptism we have all bowed to follow Christ and his doctrine. No one has vowed to follow the pope, bishops, and clergy. Thus Christ has thoroughly rejected and forbidden the doctrines of men. However, Christ here comforts his poor Samaritans, who for his name's sake must risk their lives with the priests and Jews, and strengthens their hope with a sentence and judgment, that he demands the nine, and he judges them as God's thieves, those who steal God's glory, and justifies the Samaritan. For this hope gives them strong courage, that their cause before God will be rightly maintained and will stand. But the opposite cause will be condemned and will not stand. It matters not how great they were and what right they had on earth.
Also let us observe, before Christ justifies the Samaritan, he judges the nine, that we should be certain not to hasten or desire revenge, but leave it only to him and go our way, for he is in himself so careful to defend the right and punish the wrong, that he first takes up the latter before he rewards his Samaritans. Besides, he uses many more words in this sentence than to the Samaritan, so that we see how greatly he is concerned about it. He by no means forgets their wrongs and our rights, nor does he wait long to have them accused before him, but if his own free will summons them, so that without doubt the cause of the unbelievers influences him more and sooner than it strikes or harms us, of this, God speaks in Moses, Deuteronomy 32:35, Vengeance is mine. And St. Paul says to the Romans, 12, 19, and he starts it by saying, Dearly beloved, in other words, you're cared for and loved by God. He says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now the words which the Lord says to Samaritan when he adjusts his affairs are the following. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. Behold, is not this a wonderful expression that he attributes his cleansing to faith? This is opposed to the judgment of the priest who told the nine that their offering and obedience to the law had cleansed them. For Christ's judgment stands and triumphs that they were not cleansed because they went to the priest or because of their offering, but alone on account of their faith. Therefore, as said above, faith will not tolerate any work that it should help man to be justified and saved. For well, this faith, more than all other things, must and will do it alone, and he employs his works elsewhere, namely to help his neighbor, as Christ has helped him. And in conclusion, we observe that this gospel sufficiently teaches and represents the entire Christian life with all its events and sufferings, for the two chief things are faith and love. Faith receives the good, love gives the good. Faith offers us God as our own, Love gives us to our neighbor as his own. Now, when such life begins, God goes to work and improves it by trials and conflicts, through which a man increases more and more in faith and love, that through his own experience God becomes to him so heartily dear and precious, and he no longer fears anything. Then hope grows, which is certain that God will not forsake her, of which St. Paul speaks in Romans 5, 3, 5, 3, 4, and 5. We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And Paul always treats of these three principles in his epistles. To the Colossians he speaks in this way. This is the first chapter 3, 4, and 5. 
We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And still more beautifully, it says to the Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. See how beautifully he divides the three principles that faith goes forth in trusting, love in laboring, and hope in patience and suffering. As though he would say, your faith is not a dream nor a fancy, but it is life and action. And your love is not passive nor is it idle, but it serves well for your neighbor. All this takes place in prosperous days while your hope is exercised in suffering and patience, and all this in Christ. For there is no faith, nor love, nor hope outside of Christ, as I said above. Thus a Christian life goes through good and evil until the end, and yet it does not seek revenge, and only grows more and more in faith, love, and hope. The love which naturally follows faith is divided into two parts. It loves God, who does so much for her through Christ in faith. It loves its neighbor and does to him as God does to her. Therefore, all the works of such a man go to his neighbor. For God's sake, who loved him, and he does no work relating to God except to love and to praise to God, except love and praise for him, and he confesses this freely before the world, for God does not need other works. Thus all worship is with the mouth, although that is also called a service of God, which is done to our neighbor. But I speak now only of the service rendered to God, in which the one part man can take is to love, and to praise. But in this he must resign himself wholly and entirely in all adversity. Behold, what more would you know as to how to be a Christian? Have faith and love, continue in these, then you have and can do all things. The rest will all be taught and given to you without any exertion on your part. Now this gospel of the ten lepers is further expounded in a special book or apostle which examine for additional information. There you will also find the allegorical interpretation or the spiritual meaning of it. And then down at the bottom it says, See the miscellaneous sermons of Luther. And that's the end of that sermon. Now I don't want to rush myself, but we got two more sermons to follow on this tape, and they're both the 15th Sunday after Trinity. The first one is not found in edition C. Text is Matthew 6, 24 to 34. 
no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? This makes me think that we should ask for faith. The way Christ words it here. Therefore, take no thought saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I like to think of it as sufficient for one day is enough evil in itself. And that's the end of that there text. Now we go to Luther, it says, page 103. Now in this gospel we see how God distinguishes Christians from heathen. For the Lord does not deliver these teachings to the heathen, for they could not receive them, but to his Christians. However, he does not consider those Christians who only hear his word, so as to learn it and be able to repeat it as the nuns do in the Psalter, or to the Psalter in the nunnery. In this way, Satan also hears the gospel and the word of God. Yea, he knows it far better than we do, and he could preach it as well as we if he only wanted to. But the gospel is a doctrine that should become a living power and be put into practice. It should strengthen and comfort the people and make them courageous and aggressive. Therefore they who only hear the gospel so that they may know it and be able to speak about the wisdom of God are not worthy to be classed among Christians. But they who do as the gospel teaches, they are the true Christians. However, very few of these are found. We see many hearers, but all are not doers of the gospel. We wish now to examine more closely what kind of doctrine the Lord teaches in this gospel. First, he begins with a plain, natural example, so that we all must confess it is true. Experience also teaches the same to everybody. He says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. 
Now he who serves two masters will do it in a way that cannot be called serving at all, for it will certainly be as the Lord here says. One can indeed compel a servant to do a certain work against his will, and he may grieve while doing it, but no one can compel him to do it cheerfully and mean it from the bottom of his heart. He, of course, does the work as long as his master is present, but when he's absent, he hurries away from his task and does nothing well. Hence the Lord desires our service to be done out of love and cheerfully, and where it's not done in this way, it's no service to him. For even the people are not pleased when one does anything for them unwillingly. This is only natural. We experience daily that it is so. Now, if it be the case among human beings that no one can serve two masters, how much more is it true in the service of God that our service cannot be divided? But it must be done unto God alone, willingly, and from the heart. Therefore, the Lord adds, by saying, ye cannot serve God and mammon. God cannot allow us to have another Lord besides himself. He's a jealous God, as he says, and cannot suffer us to serve him and his enemy. Only mine, he says, or not at all. Behold how beautifully Christ here introduces the example, no man, he says, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. As if to say, as it is here in man's relations to his fellows, so it is also before God. We find very few who do not sin against the gospel. The Lord passes a severe judgment, and it's terrible to hear that he should say this of us, and yet no one will confess, yea, no one will suffer it to be said, that we hate and despise God, and that we are his enemies. There is no one, when asked if he loves God and cleaves to him, would not reply, yes, I love God. But see how the text closes? That we all hate and despise God and love mammon and cleave to it. But God suffers us to do this until his time. He watches the time and someday he'll strike into our midst with all violence before we can turn around. It's impossible for one who loves gold and earthly possessions and cleaves to them not to hate God. For God here contrasts these two as enemies to one another and concludes, If you love and cleave to one of these, one of these two, then you must hate and despise the other. Therefore, however nicely and genteely one lives here upon earth and cleaves to riches, it cannot be otherwise than that he must hate God. On the other hand, whoever does not cleave to gold and worldly goods, loves God. This is certainly true. But who are they that love God and cleave not to gold and worldly possessions? Take a good look at the whole world. Also the Christians, and see if they despise gold and riches. It requires an effort to hear the gospel and to live according to it. 
God be praised, we have the gospel, that no one can deny, but what do we do with it? We are concerned only about learning and knowing it, and nothing more. We think it's enough to know it, and do not care whether we live according to it. However, on the other hand, one is very anxious when he leaves lying in the window or in the room a dollar or two, yea, even a dime, and he worries and fears lest the money be stolen. But the same person can do without the gospel through a whole year, and such characters still wish to be considered as evangelical. Here we see what and who we are. If we were Christians, we would despise riches and be concerned about the gospel, that we someday might live in it and prove it by our deeds. We see few Christians, therefore we must hear the judgment that we are despisers of God and hate God for the sake of riches and worldly possessions. Alas, that's fine praise. We should be ashamed of ourselves and our inmost souls. There is no hope for us. What a fine condition we are now in. That means, I think, our names are blotted out. What spoiled children we are. Now the world cannot conceal its unbelief and its coarse outward sins, for I see that it loves a dollar more than Christ, more than all the apostles, even if they themselves were present and preached to it. I can hear the gospel daily, but it does not profit me every day. It may indeed happen if I have heard it a whole year. The Holy Spirit may have been given to me only one hour. Now, when I enjoyed this hour, I obtained not only $500, but also the riches of the whole world. For well, what have I not when I have the gospel? I received God, who made the silver and the gold and all that is upon the earth. For I acquired the Spirit by which I know that I will be kept by him forever. That is much more than if I had the church full of money. Examine now and see if our hearts not a rogue full of wickedness and unbelief. If I were a true Christian, I would say, The hour the gospel is received, there comes to me a hundred thousand dollars and much more. For if I possess this treasure, I have all that is in heaven and upon earth. But one must serve this treasure only, for no man can serve God and mammon. Either you must love God and hate the money, or you hate God and love the money. This and nothing more. The master uses here the Hebrew, which we do not. Mammon means goods or riches, and such goods as one does not need, but holds as a treasure. And it is gold and possessions that one deposits as stock and storage provisions. This Christians do not do. They don't gather treasures, but they ask God for their daily bread. However, others are not satisfied with this. They gather a great store upon which they may depend. In case God should die today or tomorrow, they might know then a way out. 
Therefore, St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians 3, 5, that riches and covetousness are the God of this world, and they are idolatry. With this, Christ here agrees and calls it serving mammon. Now, how does it come that the gospel and St. Paul call especially covetousness and not other sins idolatry, since uncleanness, fornication, lust, base desires, unchastity, and other vices are more opposed to God? It's done to our great shame because gold is our God that we serve and that we trust, because gold is our God, that we serve, and that we trust, and rely upon it, and can neither sustain nor save us. Yea, it can neither stand nor walk, it neither hears nor sees, it has no strength nor power. With it there is neither comfort nor help. For if one had the riches of the whole world, he would not be secure for one moment before death. Of what help are his great treasures and riches? To the emperor when the hour of death arrives and he's called to die. They are a shameful, loathsome, powerless God that cannot cure a sore, yet it cannot keep and take care of itself. There it lies in a chest, and there it devotes, waits, and there its devotee waits, yea, one must watch it as a helpless, powerless, weak thing. The man who has this gold must watch day and night, lest thieves steal it. This helpless God can aid no one. You should have contempt for this lifeless God that cannot help in the least, and is yet so scrupulous and precious. He lets its devotees wait in the grandest style, and protects itself with strong chests and castles. Its Lord must wait and be in anxiety every hour, lest it perish by fire, or otherwise experiences some misfortune. Does this treasure or God consist in clothing? Then one must be careful and on his guard against the smallest little insects, against the moth, lest they ruin or devour it. The walls of our room should spit upon us in contempt that we trust more in the gold the moth eat the moth eat and the rust corrupt, and in the God who creates and gives all things, yea, who holds in his hand heaven and earth and all that in them is. Is it not a foolish thing on the part of the world to turn from the true God and trust in base, low mammon, in the poor, miserable God who cannot protect himself against rust? Oh, what a disgraceful thing this is on the part of the world! God visits gold and worldly possessions with many kinds of enemies to bring us to see and confess our unbelief and godless character, and we thus trust in a powerless and frail God, we who could at once so easily approach and cleave to the true powerful and strong God, who gives us everything, money, goods, fruit, and all we need. Yet we are so foolish and make gods out of his gifts, Shame on thee, thou cursed unbelief. Other sins give us at least a little pleasure. We receive some enjoyment from them, as in the case of eating and drinking. In unchastity, one has pleasure for a little while. Likewise, anger satisfies its desire, and other vices more so. Only in this one vice, 
or this vice must one incessantly be in slavery hounded and martyred and in it no one has any pleasure or joy whatever there the money lies on a pile and commands you to serve it in spite of it letting anyone draw from it a thimble full of wine there comes rust and devours it and yet he dares not attack it lest he angers his god and when his servants have protected their god a long time they have no more than poor than any poor beggar i having nothing yet i eat and drink as heartily as anyone who has a large supply of mammon when he dies he takes as much along with him as i do and it's certainly the case that these people never live as well nor as richly as the poor people often do who arranges this thus who god the lord does it here some have a certain affliction of the body that they have no appetite over there another is internally unsound and never relishes what he eats here their stomach is out of order there their lungs and liver are diseased here is this and there is that sickness here they are weak and afflicted at one point there at another and they never have an enjoyable hour to relish what they eat or drink thus it is with those who serve this god mammon the true god is still of some use he serves the people but mammon does not it lies quiet and lets others serve it for this reason the new testament calls covetousness idolatry since it thus desires to be served however to love and not to enjoy may well vex the devil this all now experience who love the god mammon and serve him whoever has now no sense of shame and does not turn red has a brazen face thus now it is with the word the word serve where it's not forbidden to have money and possessions as we cannot get along without them abraham lot david Solomon and others had great possessions and much gold. And at the present day there are many wealthy persons who are pious in spite of their riches. But it's one thing to have possessions and another to serve them. To have money, money and to make a god out of it. Job also was wealthy. He had great possessions and was more powerful than all who lived in the east as we read in the first part of the book of Job. Yet he says in Job 31, 24, 25, If I have made gold my hope, and said to the fine gold, Thou art my confidence, have I rejoiced because my wealth was great, and because my hand had gotten much? Sum of all is, it's God's will that we serve not gold and riches that we be not over anxious for our life, but that we labor and commend our anxiety to him. Whoever possesses riches is Lord of the riches. Whoever serves them is their slave and does not possess them, but they possess him. For he dare not make use of them when he desires and cannot serve others with them. Yea, he's not bold enough to dare to touch it. 
However is he lord over his riches, then he, they serve him, and he does not serve them. Then he dare use them as Abraham, David, Job, and other rich persons. He casts his care only upon God, as St. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7.32. says in there, I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Hence he aids the poor with his wealth and gives to those who have nothing. When he sees a person without a coat, he says to his money, Go forth, dollars, there's a poor naked man who has no coat. You must be of service to him. There lies one sick who has no medicine. Go forth, Go forth squires Annaberger and Jochenethaler. You must hasten and help him. Those who act thus with their riches are their lords, and all true Christians surely do this. Those who save piles of money and ever scheme to make their keep larger instead of smaller are servants and slaves of their mammon. He is the Lord of mammon, he who lays hold of and uses it for the sake of those who need it, and lets God rule, who says in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Have you nothing more? You surely have me still, and I have still enough. I have more than I have given away, and more than can ever be given away. We find around us, here and there, many pious poor people, for the purpose that the wealthy may help and serve them with their riches. Now it's time to turn the tape over. If you do it not, then you have the sure proof that you hate God. He whom this sentence does not terrify, that he will hear on the day of judgment, can be moved by nothing, for he will hear them from God then. Behold, thou hast hated me, and loved that which could not protect itself against rust and moth. Hey, how firmly you will then stand. Hence the sense is, we must own some possessions, but are not to cleave to them with our hearts. As Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart thereon. We are to labor, but we are not to be anxious about our existence. This the Master says here in our Gospel in plain and clear words, when he thus concludes, be not anxious for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, or yet for your body, what ye shall put on. He now uses a reasonable and natural form of speech by which to close that they are not to be anxious for the nourishment of their lives. For reason must conclude and yield that it is as Christ says when he gives the ground and reason of his discourse by asking, Is not the life more than food and the body than raiment? As if he would say, You turn it just around. The food should serve your life and not your life the food. Same is true in respect to raiment. 
The clothing should serve the body, not the body serve the clothing. The world is so blind it cannot see this. Now we must here have a high esteem for the words of the Lord. He says, be not anxious. He does not say, labor not. Anxiety is forbidden, but not labor. Yea, it is commanded and made obligatory upon us to labor until the sweat rolls down our faces. It's not God's pleasure for man to tramp around idly. Therefore, he says to Adam in Genesis 3.19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. And as Psalm 104, 22 and 23 says, The sun ariseth, man goeth forth unto his work and to his labor until the evening. We are not to be anxious, this is forbidden, for we have a rich God who provides us food and clothing, for he knows what we lack before we are concerned and begin to pray. Why then does he not give us what we need without our labor? Because it thus it's pleasing to him. He tells us to labor, and then he gives. Not because of our work, but out of kindness and grace. This we see before our eyes, for although we labor every year in the field, yet God gives one year more than another. Therefore we are fools. Yea, we act contrary to God's will when we are worried as to how to scrape together gold and riches, since God gratuitously and richly promises that he will give us all and will abundantly provide for our every want. However, one may say, does not St. Paul tell us to be diligent, as in Romans 12:8, he that ruleth with diligence, and there immediately follows in verse 11, Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And in like manner to the Philippians 2.20, he says of Timothy, For I have no man like-minded who will care truly for your state. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 11.8 boasts that anxiety for all the churches presses upon him. So here you see how we are nevertheless to be anxious. Well, I answer that our life and a Christian character consists of two parts, of faith and of love. First points us to God and the other to our neighbor. First, namely faith, is not visible. God alone sees that. The other is visible and is love that we are to manifest to our neighbor. Now, the anxiety that springs from love is commanded, but that which accompanies faith is forbidden. If I believe that I have a God, then I cannot be anxious about my welfare. For if I know that God cares for me as a father for his child, why should I fear? Why need I be anxious? I simply say, Art thou my father, then I know that no evil will befall me. As Psalm 16, 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. 
Thus he has all things in his hand, therefore I shall want nothing. He will care for me. If I rush ahead and try to care for myself, that is always contrary to faith. Therefore God forbids this kind of anxiety. But it is his pleasure for us to maintain an anxious care of love that we may help others and share our possessions and gifts with them. Am I a ruler? I am to care for my sub subjects. Am I a house father? I must take care of the members of my family, and so forth, according to each one, as they have received their gifts from God. God cares for all, and his is the care that pertains to faith. We are also to be interested in one another, and this is the care of love, namely, when something is given to me, that I be diligent, so that others may also receive it. Here we must be guarded, lest we make a gloss, instead of understanding simply the words as they read. Be not anxious for your life. God says, labor, and if you accomplish nothing, I will give what's needed. Does he give? Then see that you rightly distribute it. Do not be anxious to get, but see to it that your domestics and others also receive of that which God has given you, and that your domestics labor and receive a Christian training. Am I a preacher, my anxiety should not be where to receive what I am to preach, for if I have nothing, I can give nothing. Christ says in Luke 21, 15, I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to withstand or to gainsay. But if I have, that I ought to be anxious for others to receive it from me, and that I endeavor to impart it to them in the best form possible. Teach the ignorant, admonish and restrain those who know it, rightly to comfort the oppressed consciences, to awaken the negligent and sleepy, put them on their guard and the like, as St. Paul did. Command his disciples Timothy and Titus to do, and there are some Bible verses here, my anxiety should be how others are to receive something from me, but I am to study and to pray to God. Studying is my labor. This is the work he desires me to do, and when it is his pleasure, he will give. It can indeed happen that I may study a long time, and he gives nothing, a year or more, and when it is his pleasure, he gives as long as it is pleasing to him. Then he gives copiously and to overflowing, suddenly, in an hour. Thus a house father also does. He attends only to that which is commanded him, and lets our Lord God arrange as to how he will give. When he gives, then man is concerned how to impart it to his family, and he sees that they have no need as to the body and the soul. This is what the Lord means when he says that we are not to be anxious for our food and raiment, but he certainly requires us to labor, for thou must be a long time behind the oven until something is given to thee if thou dost not till the soil and work. True it is, God can easily nourish thee without thy work. He could easily have roasted and boiled corn and wine grow on thy table, but he does not do it. It's his will that thou shouldest labor, and in doing so, to use thy reason. In like manner it is with preaching. 
and all our affairs. God gives us the wool that he grows on the sheep, but it is not at once cloth. We must labor and make it into cloth. When it is cloth, it does not at once become a coat. The tailor must first work with the cloth before it is a coat. And so God does with all things. He cares for us, but we must toil and work. We have plenty of examples of this before our eyes, and God relates especially two here that should really make us blush with shame, namely those of the birds and the lilies in the field. Pointing to the birds, he says, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? As if the Lord would say, You have never yet seen a bird with a sickle, with which it harvested and gathered into barns. Yea, the birds do not labor like we, and still they are nourished. By this the Lord does not, however, teach that we are to be idle, but he tries by this example to take all anxiety from us. For a bird cannot do the work of a farmer as we do, yet it's not free from labor, but it does the work for which it was created, namely it bears its young, feeds them, and sings to our Lord God a little song for the privilege of doing this. Had God imposed more labor upon it, then it would have done more. Early in the morning it rises, sits upon a twig, and sings a song it has learned, while it knows not where to obtain its food, yet it's not worried as to where to get its breakfast. Later, when it is hungry, it flies away and seeks a grain of corn where God stored one away for it, of which it never thought while it was singing, when it had cause enough to be anxious about its food. A shame on you now that the little birds are more pious and believing than you. They are happy and sing with joy and know not whether they have anything to eat. This parable is constantly taught to our great and burning shame that we cannot do as much as the bird. A Christian should be ashamed before a little bird that knows an art it never acquired from a teacher. When in the spring of the year, while the birds sing the most beautifully, you say to one, How canst thou sing so joyfully? Thou hast not yet any grain in thy barn. It would thus mock you. It is a powerful example and should truly give offense to us and stir us to trust God more than we do. Therefore he concludes with a penetrating passage and asks, Are ye not much better than they? Is it not a great shame that the Lord makes and presents to us the birds as our teachers that we should first learn from them? Shame on thee, thou loathsome and famous unbelief. The birds do what they are required to do, but we not. In Genesis 1.28, we have a command that we are to be lords over all of God's creatures. And the birds are here our lords and teaching us wisdom. Away with godless unbelief. God makes us to be fools and places the birds before us to be our teachers and rule us and that they only point out how we serve mammon and forsake the true and faithful God. 
Now follows the other example of the flowers in the field by which the Lord encourages us not to worry about our raiment. And it reads in this way, And which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? As if to say, your life is not yours, nor is your body, you cannot make it one cubit longer or shorter, neither be anxious as to how you are to clothe yourself. Behold the flowers of the field, how they are adorned and clothed, neither do they do anything to that end. They neither spin nor work, yet they are beautifully clothed. By this illustration, the Lord again does not wish to have us cease to sow and work, but that we should labor, spin, and sow, and not be over-anxious and worrying. The evil we have is our toil. Will we in addition worry? Then we do like the fools, for it's enough that each day has its own evil. It seems to me that this is disdain that is commanded, that the flowers stand there and make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers, you who are to be devoured by the cows. God has exalted you very highly that you become our masters and teachers. Shame that this earth bears us. Is it an honor for us? I do not know. We must here confess that the most insignificant flower that the cattle tread underfoot should become our teacher. Are we not fine people? I think so. Now Christ places alongside of this the richest and most powerful King Solomon, who was clothed in a most costly manner in purple and gold, whose glory was not to be compared with that of the flowers. Is it not remarkable that the adornment of the flowers in the field should be esteemed higher than all the precious stones, gold and silver? 1 Kings 10, if you want to read it. However, we are so blind that we do not see what God designs thereby and what he means. The flower stands there that we should see it. It strikes us and says, Thou hast the adornment of the whole world, even then thou wouldest not be equal to me, who stand here and am not the least worried whence this adornment comes to me. I do not, however, concern myself about it. Here I stand alone and do nothing, and although thou art beautifully adorned, thou art still sickly and servest impotent mammon. I, however, am fresh and beautiful and serve the true and righteous God. Behold, what a loathsome, vicious thing is unbelief. These are two fine and powerful examples now, the birds and the lilies, Birds teach us the lesson as to our daily food, and the flowers as to our raiment. And in the whole New Testament, our shame is nowhere so disclosed and held to view as just in this gospel. But they are few who understand it. From these examples and parables, the Lord now concludes and says, 
Therefore take ye no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now the sum of this gospel is, Christians should not worry about what they are to eat. God provides for them before they think of their need, but they are to labor. That is commanded them. But what the kingdom of God and his righteousness are would require too much time to discuss. You've often heard about them. If you have been attentive, this is now enough on today's gospel. May God grant us grace that someday we may also even put it into practice. May the gospel remain not only in our ears and on our tongues, but come into our hearts and break forth fresh into loving deeds. Now we have the following sermon in the C edition. Same text, but it won't be the whole sermon. It will just be the part that was missing in the other sermon. The paragraphs that were missing. Now it says, in the beginning of this sermon, this gospel is a part of a long sermon Christ delivered to his disciples on the mount in which, among other things, he especially warned and admonished his disciples against the infamous vice of avarice and anxiety for daily bread, the legitimate fruit and proof of our unbelief. This does great harm in Christendom when it takes possession of those in the office of the ministry who should be occupied by nothing except teaching the word of God and faith aright and chastising the error and sin of the world. For when it possesses these, it should confess God's word before all persons and be prepared to serve everybody for the sake of God, even if they be obliged on that account to lose their riches, honor, body, and life. Christ wishes also to teach here how he desires to have his kingdom distinguished from the civil life and government that he will not govern his Christendom upon earth so that it be conceived and vested as a government where Christians are first of all to be amply provided temporal goods, riches, and power, and who need not fear any need or danger, but he wishes to provide them with spiritual treasures and what their souls need so that they may have his word, consolation of his grace, and the power and strength of the Holy Spirit against sin and death unto everlasting life. Moreover, whatever they need of temporal things for this life and the necessaries for present wants, they are to expect also from him, and they are not to be terrified if they do not see this for their very eyes and have it prepared for the future and are tempted by want and need. On the other hand, they are to know that their God and Father will care for them and will surely give them all if they with firm faith are only anxious about and seek how they may continue faithful to his word and in his kingdom and serve him there. 
Therefore, Christ makes a distinction in this sermon by which he separates his Christians from the heathen and unbelievers. For he does not deliver this doctrine to the heathen as they do not accept it, but to those who are already Christians. He does not, however, consider those Christians who only hear his word and can repeat it like the nuns do the Psalter. In this way, Satan also hears the gospel and the word of God. Yea, he knows it better than we and can preach it just as well as we if he only wished to do so. But the gospel is doctrine that is to be a living power and put into practice. It should be strengthening and comfort to people and make us courageous and aggressive. Therefore, they who only hear the gospel thus, so that they know and can speak about it, are not to be classed among Christians. Those who believe and do as the gospel teaches, they are righteous. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. Now, he who tries to serve two masters will do it in a way that cannot be called serving at all, for it will certainly be as the Lord here says. One indeed can compel a servant to do a certain work against his will, and he may grieve while doing it, but no one, one can compel him to do it cheerfully and mean it from the bottom of his heart. He, of course, does the work as long as his master is present, but when he is absent, he hurries away from his task and does nothing well. Hence the Lord desires our service to be done out of love and cheerfully, where it's not done thus, it is no service to him. For even people are not pleased when one does anything for them unwillingly. This is natural, and we experience daily that it is so. Now, if it be the case among human beings that no one can serve two masters, how much more is it true in the service of God that our service cannot be divided, but it must be done unto God alone, willingly and from the heart? Hence the Lord adds, You cannot serve God and mammon. God cannot allow us to have another Lord beside himself. He's a jealous God, as he says, and cannot suffer us to serve him and his enemy. We find very few who do not sin against the gospel. The Lord passes a severe judgment, and it is terrible to hear that he should say this of us. And yet no one will confess, okay, no one will suffer it to be said that we hate and despise God and that we are his enemies. There is no one when asked if he loves God and cleaves to him who would not reply. Dost thou take me to be such a desperate character as to be an enemy of God? But see how the text here closes that we all hate and despise God and love and cleave to mammon. For it's impossible that he who loves gold and riches and cleaves to them should not hate God. Christ here holds the two opposed to one another and as enemies, and he says, If you love one of these two and cleave to the same, then you must hate and despise the other. However well a man may live here upon earth, he clings to riches. It cannot be otherwise than that he must hate God. Whoever does not trust in gold and worldly riches loves God. This is certain. 
Now in a footnote down here it says, paragraphs 6 through 36 inclusive are the same as paragraphs 6 to 36 in the preceding sermon, as will appear from a critical examination. Paraphrasing is a little different, but the matter is the same. It's not necessary, but rather confusing to repeat it here. So therefore, we start at paragraph 37. And that is on page 121. Be not therefore anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. As I said at the beginning, Christ delivered this sermon to his Christians, especially to those in the office of the ministry, or those who otherwise either had nothing or could acquire and gather for themselves riches and mammon. As the rest of the world does, in order that they might know from what source they could nourish and support themselves and their families. Yea, they are compelled to live in the danger of being robbed of the little earthly goods God gave them, and thus they are, without the least doubt, compelled to live entirely upon the help that God sends them, and they expect from him, since the world gives them nothing. This is indeed painful to flesh and blood, and is very burdensome to them. Yea, no one can bear or do it, unless he is a believing Christian. For well, the world is so disposed that it will not take the least risk in temporal matters for the future, but it must be sure of them, order beforehand, and have in store and ready for use whatever it needs, as food, peace, protection, and insurance, so that it can live and depend upon neither God nor the people. But, as it is evident, that the world enriches no one because of his faith and piety. They think they must act and live as others do in order that they may nevertheless have also something. Against this he herewith comforts and strengthens his Christians and again repeats, They shall therefore not worry nor doubt nor wiggle in such unbelief, saying, Oh, what is to become of us? Who's going to give us anything? That word wriggle, it's wriggle pronounced. It's either wriggle or... I guess wiggle means the same thing. Anyway, it's to extricate or insinuate oneself or reach a goal as if by wriggling, moving back and forth, twisting, squirming, and so on. Anyway, they wriggle saying... In unbelief, what is to become of us? Who's going to give us anything? Christ does not want his Christians doing this. Where in this world are we Christians to get food, protection, and peace? But they must know that their Heavenly Father provides for this and will also give it to them. He who for this very reason is called their Father, not the unbelievers, although he feeds all the world and gives everything, in order to show that he will also not leave his children, that was in brackets, not the unbelievers. He's not called their father. He leads them into God's high work of the whole creation, that they may see how he nourishes and supports all things which he creates, after having ordered and regulated each one, also all the birds in the air, which as you see, 
For ye know, do not fret about their food, nor know beforehand whether they shall take it. Hey, especially also the little flowers, does he so deck and adorn, that such beauty and finery might more fittingly be supplied elsewhere. For does it not seem quite useless, since they only bloom for perchance a day? Must he not therefore much more think and care for his Christians, how they may be fed and clad, where they might dwell and stay as long as they have to live on earth? This he admonishes them to believe and to impress them most strongly with it, not by many, but by earnest words. He suddenly breaks off after having held up to them the examples from daily life and God's work among his creatures, closes with these words, Shall he not much more do such things for you, O ye of little faith? He wishes to say, well, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves if you are Christians and know that you have a Father in heaven to let me do so much preaching about this. Yes, ashamed you ought to be and not permit that such things be said of you. But must not I say that ye are so small and have so little faith and that ye so little confidence without doubt and care in a living God who gives you his word and promise and has chosen you as his children? that he would nourish and support your body and life? How then will you stand without shame and disgrace, not alone before God, but before all his creatures, if that is to be said of you, and you yourselves by your own confession must testify that you, having so plentifully God's word and grace, so little trust him with caring for your miserable maggot sack and stinking belly? Still more strongly does he speak to them by saying, After all these things do the Gentiles seek, and so forth. This ought surely to debtor a Christian when he hears a public and terrible verdict spoken that those who worry and hanker after mammon are heathen, that is, people who really have no God, who instead of God serve mammon in which there is only God's name and naught but lies and vanity. Therefore are wholly cut off from God, deprived of all divine knowledge, comfort, grace, and bliss. These are none other than the most miserable, most unfortunate, condemned people who have never any salvation or comfort to hope for. Here you see the world pictured, what sort of a thing it is, namely the big mighty crowd, excepting a very few Christians, who as soon as they've grown up, Turn altogether away from God and serve mammon, the God of lies. Him do they hold as a great, a the only God, because the crowd that follows him is so great. Nevertheless, he's nothing, a mere powerless man. So a Christian should truly be horrified and shocked when thinking of such blindness and misery of the world. He should with sighs and tears strive and work for it to be far removed from such shameful practices and run from it as run he can, as it were out of a fire, a out of the midst of hell. Thirdly, in order in the most loving and comforting way to entice us to believe, he again says, Your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Is he not your Father, and only your Father, not the, not the birds, the geese, or ducks, nor the godless heathen's father, then trust him to be so loving that he will, as a father, care for you and either forget nor leave you. 
Hey, that he has long before known what he should give you, and has provided therefore, ere you yourselves think of it, or feel your wants. For who but he has before known or thought what you would be or need, ere you were born into this world? Therefore honor him so far as to believe that he sees and knows such things, and knowing them will act with you as a father does. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That is a chief passage in this sermon, and states the right rule and manner how we are to proceed in order to get both the divine or eternal gift, and what we need for this life. Would you rightly and well take care? Whereof it behooves you to take care, then let this be the first, day indeed, your only care, that you strive according to God's word to do your duty, Serve him in his kingdom as his word teaches you. For in this consists the righteousness belonging to this kingdom. And apprise this most highly, more highly than all pertaining unto this temporal life. If you do this, then you have done and provided well, and need not take any further burdens upon you, nor cherish any cares in your heart. Indeed, it should be much too small a thing for you. For you to care for such a light matter as the wants of your belly, and therefore to aggrieve yourselves. Rather, do this for the honor of God, and furthermore for your own use and benefit, that you strive after the great and eternal good, which if you attain and keep, the rest will surely take care of itself. Neither can you in any better way arrive at obtaining it from God than in this wise that you first seek and ask of him the great things. For this is to his liking, that ye ask great things of him, and that he be able to give great and many things. And for the reason that he gladly gives great things, he will also not stint the small things, but throw them to boot into the bargain. This God has constantly caused many pious people to experience, who following this rule and precept have striven to help in building God's kingdom, have served the church, furthered God's word, and given thereto of their means. He then, on the other hand, has richly blessed them with goods, honor, and so forth. This is evidenced by the old examples, not only of the scriptures, but also by the history of some of our pious kings and princes, who first having given plentifully for parishes and pulpits, for the support of the holy ministry and poor schools, have thereby not become poorer, but were much more richly blessed and endowed by God, so that they have reigned in good peace with victory and good fortune. This he would gladly still do if the world could or would happily for its own good follow the well-meant advice which he here gives, and not with unbelief, greed, and unchristian-like scheming rage against his word to its own harm and ruin. So must he turn this word with her and prove the contrary, that he who will not strive after God's kingdom and his righteousness, but despises the same and reckons to provide for himself against God's will by means of his own wisdom and plotting, must be deprived both of the eternal and of the temporal, and either not obtain the temporal or at least not be satisfied and happy with it. Now the last verse says, Be not therefore anxious for the morrow. Our version says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow. 
For the morrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Thereof. The world is always anxious about the future, and therefore with, and therefore with, and therewith rather, thinks to assure its fate, and to bring this much about that it may be removed from danger, protected and supported by itself. They see not the vanity thereof, and that their projects go wrong, that it be true, and experience testifies, as Christ here says, that each day brings its own misfortune and evil. Thus it comes to pass that with such plottings and prudence of their own, whereby they mean to ensure themselves and to forestall all coming danger, the world only causes the more woe and harm. For whenever they see that things do not go as they expected, or that an accident happens, then they begin to despond. They think of one remedy and another. Imagine they must, wherever and as best they can, look for help, protection, and safety. Thus they patch for themselves, and think to help matters by all sorts of strange craftiness and practices, whereunto they are driven by unbelief against God, and their conscience, thus to carry out what they have in mind, albeit they see that God does not prosper such things, hence springs so much misfortune, misery, murder, war, and all mischief and misdoing of the wicked world. Each one means to carry out his affairs without God, to oppress and choke whosoever would hinder him, and rather to throw all things higgledy-piggledy on a heap than to desist from his mind. Thereby in all affairs and governments all good things perish, and naught but evil grows, as all history and daily experience more than amply show. Against this sort of thing Christ cautions his believers that they may not waver nor stake their affairs on that which is uncertain mainly caring for the future, but at all times and daily do that which is right. They may not worry how things will come out, nor permit themselves to be swerved by future and uncertain good or evil things. Rather commend care to God, and then take everything that occurs to them in good part, and overcome it with faith and patience. For it cannot be on earth otherwise than that each one daily in his office, estate, and calling meet with other things than he gladly welcomes, which causes him much trouble and labor. Hence does also Christ call this life daily evil. Suspicion unto the day is the evil thereof. Evil or misfortune, that is to say, all sorts of misfortune, resistance, hindrance, that we may know it and be prepared for it, so as not to be frightened by any of them from doing good, either yet to hanker after the world and become partakers in its unrighteous and evil affairs, thereby leading ourselves and others into ruin and damnation. Now I'm going to read a song here. I wish I could sing it, but I don't know how to sing it. Even if I could, I wouldn't do a good job. So I'll read it. It's uh, in the Blue Book song, 278. God has not promised skies always blue. 
flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. Now the chorus goes, but God has promised strength for the day, rest for the weary, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing kindness, undying love. God has not promised, next verse, God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. God has not promised we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. Now the chorus. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the weary, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing kindness, undying love. Third verse, the last verse. God has not promised smooth, ro smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travels, needing no guide, never a mountain, rocky and steep, never a river, turban and deep. But, the chorus again, God has promised strength for the day, rest for the weary, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing kindness, undying love. Now, I'll read all I can of this 280. Of Jesus I am singing, my comfort from on high, my days on earth adorning with grace doth beautify, my soul such peace enjoying, inspires my hymn of praise. Of Jesus I am singing, through sad, through joyful days. Of Jesus I am singing, he died on Calvary, salvation's pathway opening from death to life for me. Of Jesus I am singing, enjoying peace untold, his works of grace remembering, reposing in his fold. Of Jesus I am singing, he keeps me tenderly, close by his side abiding, with grace chastising me. His faithfulness unceasing from straying keepeth me, my heart overflows with praising now and eternally. Of Jesus I am singing upon this homeward way, and blessed one day in glory, mid heaven's joys for aye. The veils of Eden ringing, where living waters flow, with songs of Jesus singing, so perfectly I know. And so, let us continue day by day. Now, we will begin the 16th Sunday after Trinity on the next tape. And the contents is the miracle of Christ in raising the son of the woman of Nain from the dead.